Welcome to another episode of Bereans Podcast. Each week we share a message from the Bible and examine it to understand and learn to apply it to our lives. The hope is that through the wisdom of the scriptures, we will all be encouraged to make real life change and that the power of the gospel will transform our lives. Thanks for listening and enjoy this episode of the Berean Podcast that starts right now. church and good morning to our worshiping community online my name is Jeff Utech it's good to be with you here today great is the Lord and greatly to be praised how wonderful it is to be in the house of the Lord and to make his praise glorious as we sing of his praise forever and ever amen hey I'm the director of the classic worship uh, services on the other side of the the commons uh, I direct the worship over there at 8.15 and uh, 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings, and it's a joy to do that. But it's also a joy to be here with you today, here in this preaching uh, this preaching spot. And I can imagine when I walked out on stage, some of you were like going, huh, who's that guy? Where did he come from? You know, I started uh, here at Berean about 14 months ago. Uh, following in the footsteps of Pastor Ken Parker. Ken was the uh, worship leader, choir director uh, on the classic side of our worship experiences. And so I followed in his footsteps. Uh, he's become such a good friend of mine today. Ken retired. And uh, I want you to know that I also retired from ministry <laughs> full time uh, back in 2019. I uh, served about 39 years as a lead pastor within the United Methodist Church here in Minnesota. Uh, I'm a graduate of Bethel Seminary, so I've often um, had people wonder, how can a person who goes to a Baptist seminary serve in the United Methodist Church? And you're right, it's not easy to do. Um, but that's been the story of my life, and it's been a great, uh, a great time to be in ministry all those years, and to be able to part, be a part of the ministry here at Berean as well. In 2015, my bishop called me up and he said, Jeff, I was living in Rochester at the time. We were serving a church there in our 18th year. And he said, I know you've always wanted to come back to the Twin Cities. That's my home area. And he said, we're wondering if you would become an interim pastor and help some churches that are going through rough times transition to uh, healthier times. And I said, well, I've never done that before, but I figured God was in this call so Lori and I decided to move back to our home area. We live in Savage now. And I started doing interim transitional work. And my wife started attending here at Berean, uh, where our son Ben and his wife and family attend. And um, she became a part of the GO team. And I began to get to know Berean Church through her and all of her wonderful conversations and recollections of what was going on here. And in 2019, when I retired, I said to Lori, I said, you know, you've been following me for roughly 46 years in ministry. 
all kinds of churches and situations and events, I said, I think it's time I follow you. And so you have a church home, and I'm going to start attending there. And uh, so from time to time, I'd be coming to Berean and and, uh, getting to know some of the staff members. In particular, I did get to know Terry Foss, uh, and it was Terry who called me up about 17 months ago, and he said, Jeff, would you like to be an interim pastor again? (laughs) And I said, well, what do you have in mind? He said, well, Ken's retiring. And uh, I said, how long? He said, three months. I said, that, that'll work just fine into my schedule. <laughs> but as Pastor Roger is you know, known to say, three months becomes six months, six months becomes 12 months, and now it's 14 months. But I'll tell you, a few weeks back, I was asked by Pastor Devin if I would uh, pinch hit for him and really the entire, I, I suppose, a pastoral team. Uh, people have vacations. Uh, we've got special activities and renewals and things like that that go on throughout the summer months. He said, Jeff, could you pinch hit for us and preach one Sunday? I said, you know, Pastor Devin, I haven't talked that much in four years, but <laughs> I admit I'm honored and uh, it feels a little bit like pinch hitting for Babe Ruth or uh, You know, for my era, it would have been Rod Carew or maybe for you, Kirby Puckett or something like that. But here I am, and I'm so glad to have been given this opportunity to share the gospel with you and to be a part of this sanctuary. I haven't been in a full service here, gosh, in over a year. So it's just great to be a part of it. Well, this morning is our second Sunday in a series we're calling These Are a Few of My Favorite Things. And it's a theme that allows the preacher an opportunity to select maybe a special topic or scripture, or a story uh, that has you know, grown in interest to them, and to be able to share that with you. And so today, I want to talk about the glory of God. On the classic side, uh, Pastor Ken started about 14 years ago, and the theme of his worship each and every Sunday to the choir was, we are here to make God's praise glorious. And that stuck in my head and kind of led me to thinking about glory of God and our need to live life fully to the glory of God alone. And so let's jump into that this morning. I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to take a look at Exodus chapter 33, verses 12 to 23. And I appreciate your standing as you are able. Thank you as we honor God's word today. This, this story takes place... Uh, Moses had been to the mountaintop of Mount Sinai. He had received the Ten Commandments. He comes down the mountain only to discover that the Israelites had already started worshiping a golden calf instead. In righteous anger, he broke the, the tablets upon which the commandments were written. And God, God told him to pronounce judgment. And thousands of the Israelites were killed that day. And so we pick up that story. It's not that long afterwards that Moses is having a conversation with God. And here it goes, verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And God said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And then Moses said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. 
Or how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight. And I love this. I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. May God add his blessing to the reading of this, his holy word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. The, uh, the church reformers in the 1500s had a Latin phrase for the glory of God alone, and I'm sure many of you are familiar with the phrase, soli deo gloria, soli deo gloria. It means all glory belongs to God. All glory belongs to God. It all goes to our heavenly father. He's the one who's in charge, and if all glory goes to him, none of it ever goes to us. It's not solely Mio Gloria. It's soli Deo Gloria. That's right. All glory to God alone. And so this is not some abstract belief that I'm up here talking about today. This is a bedrock uh, uh, belief of the church. We lean into this belief. This is life in God, life for God. A man named Paul, an apostle of the Lord, wrote 2,000 years ago, I think some amazing words. We're going we're gonna to hear from Paul again later on. But from 1 Corinthians 10.31, he wrote, Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Now, it's really tempting, isn't it, to just kind of skip over words like that? It's kind of striking when you think about it. How do you do everything to the glory of God? What did he mean by that? How do you seriously speak and eat and drink? to the glory of God. How do you not make it just some fashionable expression or some religious cliche or walk around with a sense of false humility? Yeah, I live for the glory of God. Uh-huh. What does it mean that all glory belongs to God? To the writers of the scripture, the great truth about God is that God is glorious. There is none like him. And they reveled in this. They said it gets proclaimed, it gets declared everywhere. It's so obvious. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. That glory of creation, all its beauty and wonder and majesty, its very aliveness reflect the kind of being that God is. Glory is that particular excellence of a thing that makes it praiseworthy. 
All of our music before I came out here was about praise, giving what God is due because he has a particular excellence about him that is praiseworthy. That's glory. You know, you see glory sometimes, right? When you look at a flower and you say, wow, that's beautiful. Or you look at a waterfall or the ocean or a sunset or a mountaintop. All of these things remind us of God's glory. We revel in them. We celebrate them. Psalm 29 says, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. But now there's a word in the Old Testament. When you start to study glory, you realize you know, there's a special word. It's kind of a funny word when you think about it. It's an important word for glory. It's the Old Testament word, the Hebrew word, kabod. Now, if you say it right, it'll sound like this, chabad. Don't do it. You'll spray a mist on the back of the neck of the people in front of you. And then I'll get in trouble for suggesting you do that. So please don't do that. But it's a really interesting word, this kabod. It literally means glory. Of course, Ichabod, you know that name, means no glory. Or where is the glory? But the Hebrews loved this word kabod because it belonged solely to God and to no one else. And it originally carried this idea of weight, uh, meaning substance, um, heft, significance, meaning to creation, to the earth. It all matters to you and to your life. It all matters. Indeed, your life has the weight of glory. Isn't that amazing? Now, in the Bible, this glory, the glory of God, this Chabad, is particularly associated with the presence and the holiness of God. The heavens declare it. When God's presence is made known, when it is manifest, when it is obvious, we see it, there's glory. But here, now, things get to be a little bit complicated. Even perhaps dangerous because around the time of 1440 BC Israel is liberated from slavery to Egypt and they go off into the wilderness they're going to make their way to what's called the promised land this land overflowing God said in milk and honey and he's going to establish that land for them but it's going to be a long journey and they first come to a mountain Mount Sinai and God is gloriously present there and he gives to the Israelites some ethical instructions, some moral teaching um, that we call the Ten Commandments. But there were lots of teachings that Moses heard, lots of laws that he was to encourage the people to obey. Not only that, but God gave him the definition of a whole new relationship. He wanted to enter into a relationship called a covenant with them. Now, people all over the world had relationships that were covenantal in form, but no one and no nation ever made a covenant with a God before. And so there's God present on the mountain. And to the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming, devouring fire on top of that mountain. And they realized they're just in territory too deep to try and explain. And so God communicates to them in a manner in which they can somehow see this really is God. And people are drawn to this glory, this kabod, to God's beautiful, splendid, radiant 
itself, but it's like a fire. It's dangerous and it can hurt you. Now the people, they stayed at a distance and they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we'll listen, but don't have God speak to us because we know we'll die. Wow, the glory of God is awful. In the old sense of the word, full of awe. We want it, but we're afraid of it. It can destroy us. Remember the shepherds in the story when Jesus was born there in Bethlehem? The scripture says, And an angel of the Lord appeared to the shepherds, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, the old King James Bible says, and they were sore afraid of the glory of God. Another one of my favorite verses in the Bible is written by the Apostle Paul again. This time he's writing to the church at Rome, chapter 3, verse 23. He says this, For all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. You know why? Because sin makes us want to accumulate glory for ourselves. I don't know if you've ever felt that way about your life, but it's, it's the story of the Bible. If you think back to the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. Some of you know this story. The people made this kind of a comment. Let me give you my UTEC translation. We will use our intelligence. We will use our technology. We will use our human strength, our ingenuity, all our power to build us a tall tower reaching to the heavens, not to ascribe to God the glory due his name, but come Let us make a name for ourselves. See, that's the human condition. We're in the name-making business. We're in the glory-accumulating business. We'll do whatever we have to do to bring glory to ourselves, and in the long run, we all learn it doesn't last and it doesn't work. So imagine for a moment a newly minted officer of the army has just taken command of a military base. And he's in his office, and a private knocks on the door of his office. And the officer wants to look important to the private. And he wants to have that private see in him some sense of glory and honor and respect that is due a new officer. And so he picks up the receiver, and he pretends like he is having a phone conversation with somebody who is very important, And he says, yes, sir, General Brown, I'll get right at it. You can count on me, sir. And then the officer, he he hangs up the phone and he looks over at the private and he says, private, what is it that you want? And the private looks a little bit confused. Well, I'm here to hook up your phone, (laughs) sir. But isn't that the way it is with us? We get into this glory accumulation and we we do the most absurd things to make a name for ourselves and it never works. Part of what it means to give glory to God is to die to the whole self-glory project. You know, Paul would later say, I think it was Philippians, could have been Galatians, you know, I die to myself, not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I think Pastor Devin's going to speak on that in a couple of weeks. We're hungry for glory. And we'll work longer, we'll work harder 
to try and reach that place. We'll try to make ourselves look better than we appear, sound better and smarter than we really are because we have an appetite. It's insatiable, this appetite for glory. And so we have this statement in the Bible, one of the most tragic statements for all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. And that's just the way it is. We're all little glory mongers now. You can say that to yourself. Look in the mirror tomorrow. I'm a little glory monger. We just can never get enough. But the thing is, try as we might, we can never attain glory because glory is a byproduct. Hear me. Glory is a byproduct of knowing God intimately and obeying him absolutely. That's the only way to get it. Glory is a byproduct. And it's kind of like, you know, the moon doesn't have its own light. It can only reflect the light from the sun. And that's the way we are. We are reflectors of God's glory. We are not glory manufacturers. In fact, Israel's great deliverer, Moses, knew all about this. He knew God really like nobody else ever did. We're told in Exodus 33, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one who speaks to a friend. Wow. Later in Exodus 34, this glory was so strong that Moses' face became literally radiant with the presence of God. And we're told that the Israelites could not steadily look into the face of Moses because of that glory. It's just so hard for me to wrap my mind around this. Even among us today, here's an example, humanly speaking. If somebody falls in love head over heels with another person, and let's say you want to tease them about it, and you mention them to them, the name of the person they're in love with, what happens to their face? they begin to blush and it turns red and they beam and they they glow. Well, Moses glowed with the presence of God, but it was only temporary. He would place a veil over his face so as not to frighten the Israelites with God's glory. But he also kept it there because he knew that glory was fading from time to time. He didn't want them to see the glory fade. It would come and it would go. But one day, Moses is talking with God about Israel. Remember, this this is a sinful people, and Moses cares for his people. And out of great concern for them, he says to God, God, you have to stay with Israel, because if your presence doesn't go with us, what will distinguish us from all the other peoples of the earth? And God says, okay, I'll go with you. I'll be present with you. Then the story kind of shifts gears a little bit. Moses is done negotiating with God for the nation of Israel. And it turns now to more of a private conversation. And Moses says to God, please show me your glory. It's a remarkable moment in human existence. Who of us has ever asked God to show us his glory, believing it might just happen? Show me your glory. How would God respond? Or if you were God, how would you have responded to Moses? Thunder and lightning, Hollywood special effects, huge galaxies, I don't know. But the, the point is, since we've all sinned, we have distorted ideas anyway of what God's glory really looks like. 
But Moses says it, show me your glory. And then the unexpected occurs. Who would have thought God accommodates Moses' request? The Lord said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. In other words, the most glorious thing about God is not his power, his majesty, his might. The most glorious thing about God is how good God is. Show me your glory. God says, okay, Moses, I will cause all my goodness, meaning all my kindness, all my compassion, all my mercy, all my love, all my forgiveness, all my holiness, I will cause it to pass before you and you will see my glory. But why does God do this? In verse 17, I think we get the answer. In essence, what God says to Moses is this. Moses, I'm going to grant your request because I like you. I want to be on a first name basis with you. I mean, this is a remarkable sign of God's yearning to be in an intimate relationship with his people, so much so that he's willing to violate the rules of the physical world in order to show himself to Moses. And so it's worth noting that for the first time in Scripture, we're given a clue about the physical appearance of God Almighty. And we're not really told very much But what we're told is illuminating, if you will. In Exodus 33, God says, You cannot see my face, for no one shall see me and live. But this is what God will agree to. He says, See, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. I'll cover you up with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back. But... My face shall not be seen. This is a scriptural gem. It's astonishing. It not only provides us with a bridge between the finite world and the infinite world, but it reveals a bit of, shall we say, God's holy humor. God knows that showing his face to Moses will surely kill him, but he will compromise by allowing the old man to catch a glimpse of his blessed backside. And so God places Moses in the crack in the rocks. He covers his eyes and then he moves quickly through the valley, giving Moses a fleeting glimpse of his back. How incredible is this? Imagine the excitement The fear, the trembling Moses must have felt as he hid behind God's hand awaiting a split second of revelation. You know, when I was a boy, we occasionally, you know, had the chance to view a solar eclipse. I would imagine many of you have done the same. Whenever that would happen, my parents would, you know, make a point to carefully prepare us as children to protect our eyes from any prolonged exposure to direct sunlight. So we learned how to poke a hole in a box and, and create a device that would allow us to look and, and, uh, and view a, a solar eclipse. But we were also told over and over and over again, do not look directly at the sun because it can burn the retinas of your eyes. Well, God granted Moses 
the rare privilege of witnessing an eclipse of the highest order. Scripture describes God as light, pure light. But this is no light any of us can withstand. It would be like staring into a laser beam. It's just physically impossible to do without permanently damaging or destroying. The light of God's face destroys humans. It doesn't merely blind us. And because of that, God would provide Moses with a shield, not just to protect his eyes, but to save his very life. And so God gives to Israel as much of his glory as a sinful people can endure. Oh, he's still committed uh, to their knowing something of his presence, you know, through the heavens and through the earth, some expression of the grandeur of who he is. But he adds to that now a command. He instructs them to build a tent, a moderate-sized tent, which would be a tabernacle, if you will, a humble dwelling there for the glory of God to abide. And we're told at the end of Exodus, chapter 40, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And it would go with them throughout their journeys. But here's where it gets to me really interesting. One day, the divine word, God's son, Jesus, became flesh. And now... Friends, I'm talking history of glory now in the Bible. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. When John says this in chapter 114, he uses a word from the Greek, the word skene, which literally means tent or dwelling or tabernacle. So the verb can be translated, the word Jesus became flesh and tabernacled in our midst. The word made its dwelling in our midst and, and, and then... John would go on, and we have seen his glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, the glorious Father, full of grace and truth. The glory, the Chabad of God, which came once in a humble tent, tabernacle, has now come in a humble little baby boy, in breakable, vulnerable, hurtable, killable flesh. Now, here's glory you can see and you can touch. Now at last, O earth, you can know how glorious God really is. I will come by and pass in front of you all my goodness and you shall call his name Jesus. At the Last Supper, on the final night of Jesus' life, he prays in John 17, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And then, what does he do? He goes to the cross. Such a strange kind of glory. What kind of God is this? Glorify your Son, and then to the cross he must go and be crucified. But it is there on the cross that we behold the glory of God, the Chabad, as that substance, that burden, that weight of the glory of God. 
where we learn that the cross redeemed the world, the brokenness. Before he died, Jesus prayed the most staggering prayer for you and for me. I hope you daily live with this. If you haven't yet, it's something worth memorizing. Jesus prayed for his disciples. He said, I pray also for those who believe in me. And through their word, that of the disciples, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. I have given them the glory. I have given them the glory that you have given me. Do you understand? What is going on here? You and I have been given by Jesus the glory of God. This is good news. Unimaginable. If you don't have a job today, if you've been rejected, if you've messed up stuff really bad this week, if you don't feel very attractive anymore, if you don't feel very smart today, if you don't feel like you're on top of your game, I want you to know today there is something other going on in our midst that we need to consider to you. Jesus has given, if you're a follower of his, he has given the glory of God. And that good news changes the trajectory of your life for eternity if you surrender and give your life to it. But here's the deal. We still don't want to just see the glory. No, that's not good enough. We can behold it. The heavens proclaim it, but we want more. And we can't just have it in a tent. We can't just find it somewhere and, you know, bask in it. Study it, stare at it. We can't do that either. There's something else we need. We need somehow to be a part of that glory. C.S. Lewis, writing in an essay, The Weight of Glory, he said, to be united with the beauty that we see, to pass into it, the heavens declare the glory, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become a part of it. How do you get there? At present, we are on the outside of the world. We're on the other side of the door where all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's where we are. Yes, we observe. Yes, we discern the freshness, the purity of what the heavens declare. But the glory of the heavens, the glory of the earth, these do not save you. They do not make you new creations in Christ. You cannot mingle with them and have new life. But it will not always be like this. Someday, God willing, we will get in. And here it is. When human souls have become holy and righteous and perfected in Christ, then human souls will put on nature's glory, or rather, the greater glory of which nature is the first sketch and when that day comes oh I love this when that day comes Jesus says in Matthew 13 14 the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of the father that's you in glory you will glow and then says Paul in 2 Corinthians 3 18 and words so rich you can live off these okay 
And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God. That's what we're doing right now. We behold, we reflect the glory of God, and we are being transformed into the same image, that same likeness from one degree of glory to another, glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Oh, this goes so deep. And the thing is, you and I don't have to wait for this glorious hour. This very hour can be heaven. This can be as rich as God is, for we can learn to do every moment of life to God's glory because the glory, the Chabad of God, it's right here, it's right now in the Holy Spirit. So brothers and sisters in Christ, this is what makes a life glorious. It's not a glamorous list of achievements or important things to do. This life, your shot at glory, Whatever you do, whatever you do, could be in your office, that could be a place of expressing God's glory, could be in your car, I suppose cars are not normal for this, but maybe that's a place you live in, Um, you travel it a lot, make it a place of God's glory. When you sit down at a desk to pay your bills, or you're out in the neighborhood where God loves the people nearby. When you have a cup of coffee with a friend, when you're reading a book, when you go to sleep, as some of you have done this morning, when you wake up, it's going to be glorious. (laughs) These words are so amazing. I want to share a little bit more out of C.S. Lewis's essay. He writes, the load or the weight or the burden of my neighbor's glory ought to be laid daily on my back. A load so heavy, he says, that only humility can carry it. And the backs of the proud will be broken. And this happens when we love one another as fully as Christ loved us. See, this is us. In this very room, when we concentrate our attention, our worship, our lives, our mission on the glory of God, the glory of Christ, the glory of the cross, its weight we gladly bear for the sake of our neighbor's glory. And it may look just like this. A picture of a believer as described by the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. I am part of a fellowship of the unashamed. I have Holy Spirit power. I hope you know that. The die has been cast. I've stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of Jesus. And I won't look back or let up or slow down or back away or sit still. I won't give up. I won't shut up, let up until I've stayed up and stored up and prayed up and spoken up for the cause of Christ. I'm a disciple of Jesus. I must go until he comes again. Give until I drop. Speak until all know and work until he stops me. And when he comes for his own, in all his glory, he will have no problem recognizing me. For my banner will be shining bright. Friends, all day long, 
we live in some degree or another to help each other know God's glory or not. And that is the weight of glory that is upon us. All around us are the ordinary people with whom you and I live. All other entities, nations, people, civilizations, they come and go. But it is eternal beings, eternal souls with whom you laugh and cry, sometimes ignore, I hope mostly love, for whom Jesus came, suffered, died, and rose again. So whatever you do, because this is your moment, in this room, this day, to make that decision, whatever you do, I'm going to do it all for the glory of God alone. Amen? Let's bow our heads as we pray. God, we thank you for your great glory. And I'll tell you what, Lord, if, if we had opportunity to see you as Moses, what a joy that would be. But the glory we know is the weight that you have placed upon us in our own salvation to share that glory with others. To go forth in all that we do and in all that we say and to live for you in love and in holiness. To be your people, your disciples, unashamed. Oh Christ, be all around us in this moment. Come and be above us and below us and before us and behind us so that in every eye that sees us, Christ will be all around and we will give all the honor and all the glory. In his name we pray. Amen. And that does it for this episode of the Berean Podcast. All of our ministries at Berean are geared towards the mission of seeing lives transformed by the power of the gospel. If you would like to be connected with our church family or give to the mission of Berean, just jump online to our website at bereanmn.com. Thanks for listening today, and we pray that you are encouraged by today's episode. Be sure to like us on social media, and we'll see you here next time on the Berean Podcast.